A reading from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman, or virgin, is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. The word of the Lord. I think Paul said it about as good as anyone could, so let's pray and we will go home. Now, there's a lot for us to consider this morning when it comes to marriage and singleness. And so let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thanks for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to come together again like we do every Sunday, to be together, to sing, uh, to remind one another of great truths that have been sung uh, over the ages, but also now to look into your word and to find out how we can approach uh, for this morning this topic of singleness 
what that means for us as individuals, whether we are single or married, but especially for what this means for us as a community of faith, how we can best represent you to our world, to our culture, uh, in a way that, that pleases you. So help us now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Change of a relationship status is a very significant thing. When I decided to take the leap from singleness into marriage, I was a 20-year-old sophomore in college. And as I look back and reflect on that time, from the day that I met my wife, Anna, to the day that we got married was one day shy of 18 months. And in those nearly 18 months, a lot happened. We met, we dated, we fell in love. I purchased a ring. I asked her dad for permission. I proposed. We said I do. And we did what everybody does after getting married, goes on a honeymoon, and for us, that was Disneyland. We truly did go to Disneyland. Looking back on that change of my relationship status, I was definitely motivated by, by a love for her and a desire to want to be with her. But if I were to be honest, there were also some underlying pressures uh, lurking below the surface that as I look back, I can be honest about it and say, yeah, there were some things culturally and even hormonally that was pushing me along. At the time, I was attending a Christian college uh, on which the campus dorm that I was in, there was a guy's section and a girl's section, and there was this common area in the middle that we would hang out with ping pong table and pool table and couches and tables and whatnot. And uh, this was affectionately referred to as the meat market, where cheap cologne and cheesy pickup lines abounded as is the case, unfortunately, in, in a lot of Christian colleges. If you've attended a Christian college, you can nod an affirmation. That was likely your experience. As well, phrases like ring by spring or your money back were thrown around like they were biblical passages. And girls would even proudly say, I am, I am here actually just to get my MRS degree. And there were these underlying pressures there on the campus. I was also there at school to become a youth pastor, to pursue a degree in youth ministry, and there was an underlying current there for those that wanted to be pastors. That the assumption was if you wanted to be a pastor, you had to get married. And before graduation, if you were going to get hired on at a church, you needed to find a spouse. And so there were those pressures as well lurking below the surface. And if I were to be honest, there were some hormonal pressures to... Uh, just simply say this, I wanted to give myself a promotion in what snuggle time looked like. I will not go into greater detail for the sake of my mother and children who are sitting here with us this morning. <laughs> but yes, let's be honest, that pressure is there. That pressure is there. There are a lot of pressures within the greater Christian culture to get married. I think because of this, we've done an inadvertent thing, but we have created this dichotomy between marriage and singleness where we've lifted up marriage as an ideal state, as a status symbol, as something to achieve. And singleness, well, that's still, well, yeah, that's there, but marriage is the ideal. Think of it this way. If I were to ask every single couple in this room, and don't do it, but if I were to ask every couple in this room who has been married for at least 40 years, if I asked them to stand up, probably we would respond by applauding. We do that in situations where we find out that someone has been married 25, 30, 40 years on their anniversary, so-and-so celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary, and people applaud. And inside, we feel a sense of awe and joy and respect and maybe a sense of jealousy that, man, I, I wish that was my story, or I hope that someday that can be a part of my story. 
Let's flip that coin to the other side. And what if, again, what if I were to ask those in this room to stand up who have been single and celibate for the last 40 years? What would we do? Would it be that awkward one person kind of lets a clap because somebody's standing up and that's what we have to do. Somebody's standing up, so therefore we have to clap, but it's kind of awkward because are we supposed to do that? What goes on inside? Is there a sense of maybe pity, shame, maybe even judgment and condemnation? And we might ask the question, what's wrong with that person? Why are they single? Why haven't they gotten married? We may not intentionally do this, but I do believe that there is a gap in our understanding and valuation of singleness and marriage within the church. This may not be the case for everyone, but as I have discussed this with a number of people who are single, I find more often than not that this is their experience. This is what they go through. For those of us that are married, we often forget what that was like. For me, I never lived on my own as a single person. I've always had a roommate. I didn't pursue a career as a single person. I went straight. I got married in college and then pursued having a career and a family. And I think we need to take some time, not just this morning, but even beyond this morning, to work at untangling ourselves from some bad thinking and application about singleness and marriage and how they relate to each other. And we need to find a way to reinsert the significance that we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul places upon singleness. Reinsert that significance into something that has depreciated in value over the years. Before I go any further, though, I want to offer a concession and a challenge. The concession is this. I concede I am not single. I've been married going on 14 years As I said, I I do not remember much of what it was like to live as a single person on my own because I never did live as a single person on my own. So I'm not going to try to present myself as some expert on singleness and tell everyone in here who is single exactly how you are feeling and how you should live your life. We're going to go to the Word of God and I'm going to hope to offer some encouragement and say, here's what Paul says and let's engage in this together. But I have talked with those who are single and I hope their ideas and thoughts and emotions We'll season our time together in the things that I present. But I also offer a challenge to those who are married to not tune out. You showed up. Oh, the message was on singleness. Been there, done that, married. I can move on. Time for a nap. That's not the case here. There is much that we as married people need to consider by way of knowing singleness. And not just what it's like for those who are single, but to go into the Word of God and say, what does God say about this? What does Paul share with us about singleness? We can learn a lot by engaging with those that are in a different stage of life. And there's great value to the corporate community of faith as we do that together. But also as we go through this passage, I hope you'll see that there are a number of applications that though they are intended for the person who is single, they are very relevant to those of us who are married. So please turn your attention with me to the text this morning and let's dig a little deeper into what Paul thinks about singleness. If you're here last week, David showed us how 1 Corinthians 7 is written in a literary form called a chiasm. This was a way in which the ancient writers, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, would write to point out a a key point to the, the readers. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have apps. They didn't have these at their disposal. And as a community of faith would sit and listen to the word being read or to the letters that were written to these churches... There would be these main points placed in the middle of a particular section and on either side, the beginning and the end of those main points would be parallel applications or parallel points. 
In 1 Corinthians 7, we see the the thrust of the argument is verses 17 through 24, where Paul says that those who are married and single are to remain as they were when they were called. The beginning of the chapter, he addresses marriage, and now in the second half of the chapter that we're going to look at here this morning, he addresses singleness. Three times, though, remain as you were when you were called. Remain as you were in the situation you were in when you were called. As he now moves into this portion about singleness, look what he says in verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. As though he hadn't already beat the drum enough in that middle section, he now moves into singleness and says, I want you single people, those of you who are not married, to remember this. I'm I'm speaking to you. Remain as you were. This time he gives a reason, though. It's because of the present crisis. What is this present crisis? What was going on? We really don't know exactly what it was. It might have been something that was taking place within the church. If we look back on the previous chapters that we've studied so far in this series, Paul's addressed some major concerns in the Corinthian church. They were burging, basking in the reflected glow of the glory of their leaders. They were lifting their leaders higher up than they should, and it was causing divisions within the church. There's also the portion of the letter where he says, it's not good for you to affirm an incestuous relationship in your congregation. That's a problem. There's definitely some issues, so maybe he was referring to the crisis within the church. Perhaps there was something uh, in the community, something outside of the four walls of the homes that they met in. We don't know if that was the case, or perhaps it was something uh, of the both, something within the community of faith and something outside in the community. Either way, there was a crisis, and whenever there's a crisis, it presents urgency. And Paul says, because of this crisis, I have an urgency for you to pay attention to this. There's something that matters This might not just be a, yeah, kind of think about that for a moment, and you can, if you want to, listen to what I'm saying. He says, no, there's a crisis. There's an urgency here. The thrust of the Corinthian message is you need to live out what it means to be a Christian in the community around you. You need to be the Christians that God has called you to be. And with the crisis that's going on, we can't afford to look at our personal circumstances and let those supersede God's greater purposes. As we step forward a couple thousand years into our own time, we find that there are crises that are around us. We find that even in our culture right now, there are some crises. A crisis of violence, where it seems more often than not, we turn on the news and there is another tragedy of a shooting in a public place where people went to participate in an activity, trusting that they could do so safely, but were found with the exact opposite situation. That's a problem in our culture. There's a crisis there. There's a crisis when it comes to marriage, and how do we define marriage, and what is it that we as believers are supposed to do as responding to what's happening in our culture? And what we don't need are more Christians that are running around. If you've ever seen Chicken Little, he's running around because a ceiling tile from the sky fell, and the sky is falling, the sky is falling. We don't need Christians to be Chicken Littles running around worried that the sky is falling. We also don't need more memes on Facebook and Instagram trying to convince people of our way. A meme is the worst way to do that. We need Christians, though, to be salt and light in the community, to live lives of compassion, of hope, of love and service. That's what Paul's trying to drive the Corinthians towards. There are some situations in your lives, I'm gonna address this topic of relationships, of marriage and singleness. But I want you to know that your circumstances do not dictate how faithful you should be to the kingdom work that God has called you to. This urgency has that bearing on a relationship status. 
And Paul says something in verse 20 that's interesting. Because changing a relationship status, it's a big deal. And as though he's looking at those who are single and saying, the grass, it may be a little greener on the other side, but it's probably not as green as you think it is. Look what he says in verse 28. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Cross-stitch that and put it on your wall. We write encouragement cards to one another, and we'll put Proverbs 3 or Psalm 23, and we've got these great verses that always come to the top of our minds and our hearts when we want to encourage one another. This is not one of those. I don't, if you can find a card that has this printed on it, show it to me. That would be, I would love that for an illustration someday. If you were to write that on a card, though, and gave it to a newlywed couple on their wedding day, they might kind of look at you. They've got the glow of happiness and joy and bliss. And kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back a year or two later and on one of their anniversaries, put that on a card then, and they'll probably nod in affirmation. Marriage is tough. It's hard. doesn't mean you shouldn't desire it. doesn't mean you shouldn't enter into it. But if you're single, Paul's warning, the grass is not as green on the other side as you may think that it is. So I look back on my marriage with Anne almost 14 years now. Some of the most trying times in our marriage have come as a result of one of us, most often me, doing stuff that is not conducive to peace and joy within the home. We were in Washington, D.C. a number of years ago. Our oldest was a little under two years old. My dad was back east doing an extended business trip and had a furnished apartment, so we decided to go back for a week to stay with him and see some of the sights of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And one of the things that I wanted to go see was the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. I'm a history buff. I'm nerdy in that way. And I'm like, "Ah, that would be a great place to go and see. So I looked online, figured out what it is that we need to do to go go take a tour of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and and found out that uh, there's a, a limited number of tickets that they provide at the beginning of each day for the tours that they take people on. And it's a first-come, first-served basis. So if you show up early enough, you get a ticket and you get to go on the tour. If you don't show up early enough, you don't get a ticket and you don't go on the tour. So we decided we need to leave somewhere around 6 in the morning to get on the metro station because we were staying in Maryland, to get on the metro and take the, 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 the subway into the heart of D.C. to get off at the Smithsonian stop. My dad had said, that's where you want to get off. Go a little ways. It's up by the Holocaust Memorial Museum, and you'll be able to get there hopefully early enough to get a ticket. So we get, you know, we're all touristy. We've got the backpack for the little kid, and we've got our camera, and we get on the, the metro, and there's a bunch of people going to work, and we're riding in, and I've got my, my good old tourist map that has the little illustrations, you know, it shows you all the highlights on the Capitol Mall, and, and illustrating, you know, the, the Capitol building, the Lincoln Memorial, and all those things, and, and as I'm looking at it, it also has the metro stations and where you can get off, and I'm looking at the Smithsonian stop, which my dad had said get off there, and I look, and there's this other one called the Lafont Stop. And it looks to be a little closer to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing than the Smithsonian Stop. So I looked at my wife, and I said, hey, I've got an idea. Which, by the way, ladies, if your significant other says that, chances are it's going to be followed with some pain and suffering of some sort. So we got off at the Lafont Station, and we take the, uh, the escalator up to the light of day, and look around, and there's nothing but suits and briefcases going every which direction because it's this professional office development complex and people are going to work back and forth. And the wise thing to do would have been to turn around, go back down, and go to the next stop, the Smithsonian stop. But we did not do that. I said, let's go this direction. And we started walking. 
We walked, I kid you not, two to three hours trying to find our way back. It started raining. I'm not kidding. We found some umbrellas. I'm like, oh, yeah, here's some saving grace. Some umbrellas. My wife's looking at me like, this is horrible. This is horrible. Josiah is less than two years old in the back. And I couldn't let go of my own pride and my own selfishness. And my family had to walk with me through some difficult situations because of my choices. It may seem like a small thing in the grand scheme of our life and our marriage, but whether small or big, there are things that we do that impact those that love us the most and we love the most as well. And Paul says you need to be reminded of this. Marriage, you're entering into a covenant relationship with somebody else. It's difficult. There are many troubles And I want to spare you this. I want to spare you this. Although we do know that trying times can strengthen our faith, they can easily cause our eyes to stray from the greater purposes that God wants us to be about. This is why Paul reminds us of something. We can't afford to put anything up and above God's greater kingdom purposes because time is short. And the world in its present state of brokenness is passing away. Look with me to verse 29. It says, What I mean, brothers and sisters is that the time is short. And skip down to verse 31, the end of it. For this world in its present form is passing away. Paul does something here. He says, your eyes are so focused on your own personal circumstances. Whether you're single, you're married, your eyes are so focused on that. And it's not that the relationship status in your life is unimportant, but you have become so consumed with that that it has taken your eyes off of the grander narrative story that is out there. And what Paul does in these statements is he takes our eyes from looking at our feet to a 35,000-foot view as though you're standing on top of a 14er and can see the lay of the land. And what he does is he takes our eyes off of the context of 1 Corinthians 7, and he says 1 Corinthians 7 is, is in the midst of a greater context of a letter to the, first, to the Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote. And this letter of 1 Corinthians, it sits within the greater context of a collection of letters that Paul wrote to churches in the first century. And this collection of letters that Paul wrote sits within the greater context of other books and letters that we call the New Testament, which sits in the greater context of the Bible, what we call the Bible, alongside the Old Testament. And when you look at the entirety of Scripture, it's amazing. You look at the first two chapters and the last two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, and they stand as bookends of this grand narrative story. The first two give us a story of God creating the heavens and the earth and creating humanity, men and women, in His image. And He created them in a way that He says, I want you to represent Me, and I want you to reign and to rule and to subdue the earth, to go forth, be fruitful and multiply. As I have these kingdom purposes, I'm calling you to do my work across the face of the earth. Chapter 3 comes and we see sin enter into the equation. As Adam and Eve take a bite of the fruit. And from Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, we have this grand story of God's restorative work. In the Old Testament, we see this looking forward to the Messiah, the chosen one, Jesus that would come. And as he came and as he lived a perfect life, He went to the cross, was killed, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and in doing so was able to bring reconciliation to all things. And he announced that the kingdom is here. There is this already sense of the kingdom being here and the restorative work that God is doing. It is right now. But he ascended to the Father, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and has promised to return someday. And we await that time. We sung about that this morning. And that is what Paul is talking about. Because in Revelation 20, we see how Christ will return And he will restore things to what they were intended to be and what we are destined for. 
And Revelation 21 and 22 is this life free from sin and death and pain and sorrow. And it says we will be reigning with him. We will be reigning with him. That is God's grand purpose in all things. That is why we are here. And Paul's reminding the Corinthians and us, your eyes are down on your feet when your eyes need to be up here and see what God is doing and how you fit into that. Do we consider our circumstances in light of this? Or do we sometimes turn things around and consider the kingdom in light of our own circumstances? Look at what is sandwiched in between these two statements in verses 29 and 31. He says, From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, and those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them. He says there are spouses, sorrows, happiness, possessions, and experiences in this life that are not bad in and of themselves, but do not make them ultimate things. We will take things that are good and we will turn them into ultimate things. And I think that is what we have done with marriage. We have taken something that is good, but we have turned it into an ultimate thing. Here lies attention, because in this already and not yet time, we're first and foremost to be about God's kingdom purposes. But we've elevated marriage to such a place that that becomes the purpose, that becomes the goal, that becomes the ideal state. And we've inadvertently said that those who are single past a certain age, they're not quite measuring up. They're not quite measuring up. Singleness is significant. And it presents a greater opportunity to partner with God in the things that he is doing in this world. And that is an incredibly significant thing that neither single nor married people should ever lose sight of should ever lose sight of. If time is short and it really is preferable to remain single, Paul continues to build his case by showing the value of having undivided devotion to the Lord. Look with me at verses 32 through 35. It says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. It's pretty simple. Marriage equals distractions. Marriage equals distractions. For a husband, he is concerned about the things of the Lord and the things of pleasing his wife. For a wife, she is concerned about the things of the Lord, but she is also concerned about pleasing her husband, the things that deal with him. Paul says the person who is unmarried, they can devote their entire life to the work of the Lord. As much as our Christian culture doesn't portray this, It is impossible to get around the fact that when this is lived out in someone's life, it is a beautiful thing. I'm going to tell you about a friend of mine. Her name is Beth. My years of youth ministry. She's probably the most effective, the most amazing volunteer youth worker I have ever had the pleasure of spending time with and knowing. She gave her life to pouring into young ladies, junior high girls in in particular, there were many a Sunday morning she would come up to me after our youth service and she would say, Dan, can I get the, can I get the church van keys? 
And that's all I needed to know. She was taking girls out to lunch. She was putting together some events. She was pouring into their lives. I got an email on Christmas morning uh, from uh, her dad that she had passed away early that morning, just a little less than a month shy of her 38th birthday. She had had some health concerns. It wasn't a shock that she had passed away, but it was still devastating nonetheless. Five days later, we held a memorial service for Beth. And man, what a memorial service that was. It was the longest memorial service I've ever been into in my life. Two, two and a half hours, and nobody would have thought to get up and leave because there were so many testimonies of people sharing how Beth had impacted and changed their lives. And as person after person got up to share story after story, there were just threads of grace and compassion and love and generosity that, that wove through, and people were saying, my life is different because of this woman. And Beth poured into the kingdom by pouring into people. Whether it was people in a, students and adults and other people within a, a formal church ministry context, or if it was in her vocational work where she uh, was a professor at a local university and taught aspiring teachers about early childhood development and how they could better understand kids and be better teachers. And she poured into her students as much as she poured anybody else. And she poured into those in the community around her. Her life was marked by doing the kingdom work of the Lord. And it was a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. She is the greatest example that I know of anyone who has lived with undivided devotion to the Lord. In light of this, we each, each of us, married, single, need to wrestle with how divided our devotion to the Lord really is. To deny any sort of division is to deny our own brokenness, our own fallenness and shortcomings. Does Jesus have our all? Does he truly have our allegiance or is it Jesus plus something else? Or is it I've got my life and I've got my goals and my dreams and my hopes and everything that is in the midst of that and I'm going to try to insert Jesus into some of that. My faith is, yeah, I, I get a half hour slot on Tuesday mornings or Sunday mornings. I'm here, I'm gathering, I'm singing, I'm listening, I'm praying, doing what I'm supposed to do. How divided is our attention to the things of the Lord? Does undivided devotion mean joining more Bible studies and small groups and serving on more teams that are reaching to the community, doing formal ministry projects? Those things might be a part of the equation, but we need to remember that back when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, they simply gathered in homes, and they gathered around some words that were given to them by one of the apostles, and they encouraged one another in the faith. That was their church community. They ate together, broke bread together, prayed together, listened to the teachings of their leaders together. It's not that the programs and the activities that we have to offer as a community of faith for us to participate and serve and minister in, it's not that those are bad things. But undivided devotion does not mean adding more Christian activities to our lives. Undivided devotion means taking our faith and integrating it into every area of life, wherever you may be, wherever you may be. This brings us to the final part of the passage where Paul addresses the question of what a single person should do if they desire to get married. Time is short. We need to be focused on God's kingdom purposes. But I want to get married. Is, is it okay? Paul, are you telling me that I am forbidden from ever getting married? You said to remain as I was when I was called. Well, I was single when I came to know the Lord. Does it mean I have to? Have to remain single? As David mentioned last week, there's a way to look at Paul as he writes. There's Pastor Paul and Professor Paul. Professor Paul lays things out black and white. Pastor Paul comes in with some nuances from time to time and says, yeah, I would like this, but 
Here's some ways that you can approach this. The quick answer to that question of does uh, my desire to get married cause me to sin or to stumble in any way? The answer to that is no, not at all. But the reason for this answer is as follows. God's purposes are of greatest importance, not our personal happiness. There is no guarantee anywhere in the Bible even that every single person will get married. Remember, again, this is where we have to correct some of our thinking. We've lifted marriage up as an ultimate thing and said, this is for everybody. That's not the case. But God's kingdom purposes are most important. God has called us to be his kingdom workers, and in order to be effective, we need to live lives of integrity in order to have credibility as we share a message and do our work in the community and around others. With this, there's also a reality that needs to be acknowledged, that we were created as physical beings with passions and desires and longings for affection, for intimacy, and for physical contact. We should not ever deny that. That is a true reality for every single person. We need to keep this in mind so that we can have a right motivation and the right goals in mind as we approach the topic of singleness, as we approach this very discussion, which is not the way of our culture. Our culture tells us to indulge that it doesn't matter doesn't matter married, doesn't matter engaged, doesn't matter dating, doesn't matter anything. It is all about you and your happiness. And remember, Paul's main point in this whole chapter is that your circumstances should never dictate your faithfulness. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity. It says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they were only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. To press on and help others to do the same. That is the thing that matters the most. Look with me, though, back at verses 7 through 9, the earlier part of the chapter. Because we can't get around this whole idea of passions and urges and desires They're there. What do we do with that? Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Basically what Paul says is, if you have these desires, if you have this longing to get married, then by all means get married. Your integrity matters more than your relationship status. So even if there is more value in being single, your integrity to a a world that needs to hear your message and see a faithfulness there, that's more important. Get married. It's not as easy as 
I say it is, though, right? For those of you sitting here that are single, this might be one of the most painful things of all. Say, I desire this. I long for this. But I'm still sitting here unmarried, whether it's by way of having never been married, whether part of your story is that you've been divorced, whether you've lost a spouse and you're sitting here as a widower or widower. That longing and that desire can be a very, very strong one. And I want you to know you should never deny that. But how we come alongside one another as a community of faith, how we approach this, how we discuss this, how we even allow ourselves to discuss it is something that we need to take a hard look at. This is part of the reason why I believe there's a discrepancy between marriage and singleness. Once we get married, we're in the club. Oh, and singles, yeah, you'll find that right person. I know just the person for you. That can actually be one of the worst things to say to someone who is single. But to enter into their story and say, how can I come alongside and encourage you? This idea that singleness is a gift, it's a very important point to take a look at. When Paul uses this word gift, it's the same term that he uses later on in 1 Corinthians and in Romans and Ephesians when talking about what we know of as spiritual gifts, grace gifts that were given for the betterment of the body and for the church and for the building up of one another. This gift, though I may benefit from my own spiritual gifting and you may benefit in some way from yours, the real purpose of a gifting is for the betterment of others and the building up of the body of Christ. Singleness is a gift. If you are single and you've been told a message otherwise, you need to go back to the truth of the word of God and say singleness is a gift, no matter how short or long that may be. Remember Paul's illustration in verses 17 through 24 about slavery? Just because someone was a slave didn't mean they always had to remain that way. If you have an ability to get out of slavery, by all means, by all means. And if you are single and you have an opportunity to get married, then by all means, this does not have to be a permanent thing. But as long or as short as you are single, know that you are a gift to the body of Christ and married people. We need to affirm that in those who are single. Affirm that gift. I wonder if we could be so bold as to believe that that really was true question that's been posed is how should a single person though address their sexuality and those desires in the midst of their singleness to just simply suppress and put it down and say this is a shameful thing and we can't talk about it is the absolutely worst thing we could do as a community of faith this is something that we need to be able to engage in dialogue in some way with one another, whether one-on-one conversations, small groups. I don't know how this is going to play out. Single with single, single with married. We need to be able to bring this pink elephant from the corner and right into the middle of the room so we can help those that are struggling in this. When a group of young single people here at Waterstone was asked this question, here were some things that they suggested. Pursue activities that fill your time with the kingdom work. Put that kingdom perspective and purpose as the number one thing in your life. Whatever that may look like, whether it's a ministry here at Waterstone or it's out in the community, however that looks, be busy about those things. Fill yourself with those activities and those purposes. Surround yourself with people who will practice the one another's with you of praying for one another, loving one another, encouraging one another, bearing one another's burdens, stirring one another to love and good deeds. This is something we should do as a community of faith. We need to surround ourselves with people, those that are in the same situation as us in life, but also those that are outside of our same situation. Thirdly, learn how to practice intimacy in a non-sexual way. Intimacy is not just about that act within marriage. 
In fact, when you do get married, you find that the intimacy in the bedroom is directly related to the intimacy that you have outside of it. And if there is no intimacy as you connect and you discuss and you talk and you live and you engage with your spouse, you're not going to have true intimacy over here. And if you long to get married, discover, learn, figure out what that means for you to live a life of intimacy with others in a healthy way, but in a healthy way that pleases the Lord. As I say those things, I'm not an expert. I'm I'm not trying to stand here and say, this is going to solve every one of the ails that we might have. But these are suggestions, and I hope this is, again, just the beginning of a dialogue and an engagement with each other around this topic, and this is just a step in that direction. So with that, how can we take steps to grow towards a better understanding of singleness in the church? One place to begin, I've kind of beat this drum over and over, is to to address how we understand and value the significance of singleness. When we see it alongside marriage, we cannot put it at a different stratus of significance. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do we see marriage and singleness in terms of the haves and the have-nots? Where those who are married are the haves and those who are unmarried are the have-nots. Instead of seeing this in terms of haves and have-nots, we need to see this in terms of two halves that make up a whole. Married people, we need single people within our congregation and in our community of faith. And single people, we need married people. We need each other. And this is a great reminder that we need to go outside of our normal comfort zones and our normal spheres of influence of people that are in our own stage of life. And we need to expand our understanding by engaging with one another. A second way we can do this is to better reflect the value of singleness as we talk about it with our young people. I'll be the first to admit I am guilty of this. As I talk with my own kids, seven, nine, and almost 11, I couch singleness and marriage and all of that, I couch it in terms of when, when you get married, when you meet that right someone, when they love Jesus, when, when, when. And I've built in and conditioned my own kids to assume that they will get married. In fact, just this last week, as I've been rolling around in these thoughts, my daughter and I were doing some stuff, rearranging some things with her room, and I looked at her and I said, Gay Cambria, did you know that someday you may never get married? No, Daddy, I will. Absolutely determined to get married. Why? Because I've helped to condition her. What happens when she turns 25, 30, 35, 40? What if she's not married? Does that mean she's failed? Does that mean she lacks significance as a woman of God? By all means, no, but we have inadvertently conditioned our young people to believe that marriage is the ideal. And if you're not married, well, we'll try to find somewhere to fit you in. And I know somebody that you can marry. We've got to look at our young people and help them understand the value of singleness so that they grow up having a biblical understanding of what this looks like. I've actually been incredibly blessed to be a part of a small group this last year that consisted of two singles, or two couples and four singles. And man, we have walked through life together in a way, just in a short number of months, getting to know each other's stories that has been incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable. And with that, the third thing that we need to do is intentionally engage with one another. Engage with someone. Married people, invite a single person into your life. And not just a husband taking a single guy out for coffee, but invite them to come into your life and participate in the life of your family. 
As I shared the story of Beth, one of the beautiful things to watch was when she was in college, she was roommates with another gal named Beth. Well, Beth didn't get married, and the other Beth did and ended up having kids. But that didn't stop them from doing life together. And Beth became a surrogate aunt to those kids and went camping with them and hung out and had dinner and was always a part of their lives. Why? Because she was valuable. Because there was a great benefit to that family. We need to be intentional about stepping out and being with those, learning stories, walking alongside and saying, how can I encourage you? How can I do this? How can we do this together? A fourth way that we can do this is something I want us to do here together symbolically to engage in an activity as singles and as married people. Back when we did the Modern Family series earlier this year, after one of the the messages on marriage, we invited every married couple to come forward and to receive a blessing uh, that they would honor the Lord in their marriage. And it was a wonderful thing. It was a great experience for many of us. But we left a very important group out of that. Inadvertently, we left out those who were single, whether those single by having never been married, by divorce, by death, by being just a young kid. And I would like for us this morning, as we conclude our time, uh, to have an opportunity for both single and married people to come forward and receive a blessing uh, from those that are our leaders here at Waterstone, uh, to be able to, to hear a blessing of contentment, be content in your walk with the Lord. Be content in your state of life. Trust the Lord as you are here right now. Whether you're married and you're married to a believer, you're married and you're married to a non-believer. Whether marriage is going really good or marriage is difficult. Whether single for whatever circumstances that may be. Whether you desire to get married or not. Wherever you may be, young or old, please come as you feel led and receive a blessing of contentment. This may just be a small step, but I hope it is a step in the direction of bringing solidarity around this topic. That we would look at each other really as equals and engage as a community of faith in a way that pleases the Lord and builds each other up. So as Billy and the band start to play, please come forward as you feel led and receive a blessing.